Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, a show by academics for academics. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager. My guest this week is Dr. Margaret or Meg Chamberlain. As you'll hear, Meg is a social scientist with expertise in public health. Her education has included an undergraduate degree in international affairs and economics at the George Washington University and two masters from the University of Texas at Austin in Russian, East European, and Eurasian studies and in public affairs and public health. After her master's, she worked at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in the Pandemic Preparedness and Response Program. She later went to the Party Rand Graduate School for her PhD, where she focused on comparing the U.S. health system's responses to mental and physical ailments. We'll talk about all of that and more on this episode. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for coming on the show today, Meg. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So I would love to hear first about how you kind of got interested in public health. And I know you did an undergraduate degree in international affairs and economics. And so I was just wondering, you know, if you could talk about how you kind of got into those majors as an undergrad and then a little bit about how you started thinking about public health in those areas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have always enjoyed learning um, and I knew from a pretty early age that I had certain like strengths of I have a really good memory. Um, I really love reading and I really love to explore. And so I think as I got into high school, I started to become more and more interested in the broader world. I was pretty self-aware as a kid and aware of a lot of the stuff that was happening. I was a sophomore in high school when 9-11 happened. I felt really disappointed in our government and the way it responded. Um, I became way more aware of what was going on in the world at that age and did things, classic nerd things like Model UN. Um, And I just really got interested in that space. And when you apply, so like most high school seniors, I applied to a ton of different schools. Um, the one that I chose is uh, George Washington University. And when you apply, um, they have four different schools. They have a business school, an engineering school, a school of arts and sciences, and then they have an international affairs school. And that was where I was admitted. And um, it's really one of their top programs. So I knew starting that that was going to be my major. Um, I added the economics because I participated in, um, a women's leadership program my freshman year. Um, another sort of theme in my life is that some sort of women's only settings have come at different times in my life that were like really, really powerful. Um, and so in that one, I took all economics classes in sort of a small setting and really discovered that my love of reading and and thinking um, sort of in a more soft sciences sense matched with my skill for math. Um, and so that's sort of where the economics just kind of always made sense to me, even though 
it is ridiculous and based on so many assumptions about humanity. But the once I understood the assumptions we were making, it, it made sense. And so that's sort of how I ended up in that, in that com, you know, combination. But getting back to public health, one of the things that you have to take as part of an international affairs degree is a public health course at some point, an international public health course. So I took a global public health course um, and had an amazing professor who used to work um, at USAID, um, Dr. Vic Barbiero, I still remember the name. And it really opened my eyes to the impact there. And I think that's always been an area of my interest then on. Cool. And when you're an undergrad in kind of international affairs and economics, um, I guess in in like physical sciences, you do a lot of like research experience for undergraduates and like internships, work in labs. Is there the same equivalent in the social sciences where you're working in people's labs or going to other universities in the summer? Ah, uh, yes. I remember you telling me I was your first social scientist, and I am very honored. Um, so, yeah, there um, a lot of that is very similar. Um, not a lot of social sciences are set up as labs, necessarily, so it's not like you go work in someone's lab. But there, you know, you work as a research assistant on different research projects with different... Um, Professors, I also interned for the U.S. Department of Commerce. Um, I did some other internship things. This was a long time ago at this point. Um, but yes, interning, getting um, sort of hands-on experience is a big piece of that as well, especially because GW is set in Washington, D.C. So if you want to get experience in, in you know government, that's the place to do it. Yeah, and I, is George Washington is like one of the best schools to get kind of that entry to international affairs in the U.S., right? Uh, I like to think so. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, the Elliott School of International Affairs at GW is probably it's uh, one of its most well-respected colleges within GW, and then um, there are lots of great universities in D.C. Obviously, there's Georgetown in America. And one of the benefits to GW is that it's set right in the city. It's interspersed with other buildings. There are World Bank buildings essentially on the GW campus. So it's very, everything is very um, accessible. And so you, you really do sort of feel as though you're in, right in the heart of where policy is happening. Cool. So when you're doing um, an internship over the summer and some of these like U.S. government organizations, are you, were you doing like policy advising or like what kind of work were you doing? A little bit. It was more, um, I mean, some of it is just the basic internship experience. Like, can you help answer phones and stuff? Um, I worked in the office of, boy, now I'm going to have to remember what it was called. Well, anyways, it was essentially the International Affairs Office for the Department of Commerce. They have, like, international chambers of commerce, essentially. And so um, sometimes it was answering a phone. Sometimes it was doing some sort of um, spreadsheet analysis using Excel to look at different, you know, where trade is is moving and those sorts of things. 
honestly, I'm stretching my brain to remember because it's been a really long time, but it's much more of like, it's a little bit of your basic office experience. And I think that's a pretty big difference between social science and, and, um, hard science. Physical science. Yeah. (laughs) So while you're at... GW, you're looking ahead, and it sounds like you decided to go ahead and get a, a couple of masters at the University of Texas in Austin. Um, afterwards, how did you kind of make that decision? And can you tell us about the programs you were in at UT? Absolutely, it was 100% fear based. I didn't want to have to get a job. I was not sure I knew whether I could succeed in the working world. I had always been it in school and I knew I was good at it. And so I applied to the University of Michigan and the University of Texas at Austin. I got into the University of Texas at Austin. I swear it's because my application was due in central time. So I had one more hour to work on it. But yeah, um, I don't regret my decision at all. I think my master's programs were where I realized that I really did like research, that I really did want to get a PhD someday, that this was an area of real interest to me. But if I could do it over again, would I get two master's degrees before also getting a master's degree and a PhD? No. Um, But it was what I needed to, to learn where my path was in life. So I'm... And... I graduated just for context from um, undergrad in 2008, um, right as the economy was crashing. Um, So going straight into a master's program was probably a great thing at that point in time. Um, And I actually uh, entered a dual degree program um, at UT Austin. They have a school called the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs. It's their public policy school. It just happens to be called public affairs instead of policy. Um, And so that was where I feel I was more based. That was my sort of home program. But in addition, I got a Master of Arts in Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. Um, One thing that happened in undergrad, as it happens to many, is I started dating someone. And um, that someone happened to be um, from Eastern Europe originally. He was born in in Kiev, Ukraine. And um, I also in in undergrad, not at all related to him, but had started learning Russian. So this felt like sort of a natural fit. Not him, the Russian master's program, obviously. (laughs) Um, And so the dual degree was a forcing function for me to have to do a more in-depth thesis than I would have had to do in either one of those programs independently. Um, And so that's where I sort of really discovered that I liked research and that I could do it and that I had the bravery and the stuff to sort of do it. Um, And my master's degrees, I ended up also working on a public health topic, which is how I sort of continued that thread. I was really interested in behavioral health, mental health issues. 
And I had some conversations with different individuals who have spent time in, in different sort of former Soviet um, countries and knew that there's sort of this double burden for mental health and depression for women in Eastern Europe, largely, um, where the trend we see in the U.S. and other sort of similar Western European countries is with depression, rates of depression increase um, consistently starting in adolescence through to um, uh, menopause, essentially, and then the rates um, sort of uh, stabilize, level off. And this wasn't the trend that um, we were seeing in Ukraine. Um, and so I asked, I reached out to uh, the person who was running the Ukraine World Mental Health Survey Initiative, um, sort of running the implementation, collecting the data, and then analyzing it. And she allowed me to use her data um, to do some statistical analysis. And then in addition, during my master's, I went to Kiev for a summer and did interviewing with the help of um, a nonprofit to do more of the interviewing and help translate some of the things. I was proficient enough in Russian to understand, but not capable to sort of do that level of an interview. So because I undertook such a sort of in-depth thesis, I really knew at that point that I wanted to keep learning this way and do research at some point. So I'm so curious, when are, is this like a women-specific project? Because you mentioned menopause for the U.S. depression trends. You're, that's funny. Yes, it is. I had not pulled that thread together myself, but yes, it was among women. Mm. And then um, what was the trend in Ukraine? Like what, what was the major difference? Right. So in Ukraine, rates of depression continue to increase after menopause. Um, and uh, the interviewing I did, it was not enough to like verify any theories, but I sort of hypothesized that some of it was... Well, there are a couple of different com components. One was it was a generation of older women who had been promised something by the Soviet system, which is a fair amount of financial support in their retirement years that they had lost because of the, the shift in the in sort of um, the government structure. And then also there's different sort of familial structures where a lot of times grandmothers, grandparents end up doing childcare. And so there's a bigger burden on on sort of the older generation. And so those were a couple of my hypotheses, but I have not, I could, please do not take my word on those. <laughs> so in, like in the U.S., is the idea that it's like a hormonal change that causes the leveling off of depression rates? Or is it a, just like a societal, like, relaxation of responsibilities? I don't know the answer to that right now. Um, I, or I guess I should say, I have not been keeping up with the research in this area. Um, I think at the time, the general consensus was it had a lot more to do with societal roles and um, stressors than it had to do with like hormonal changes explicitly. Well, it sounds like that, especially if it's so different in the two air regions. Yeah. Huh. So, okay. So while you're at UT you're doing research. It sounds like you potentially already knew you wanted to do a PhD before you even got this master's. Is that right? 
Yeah, I knew at the end. Well, actually, I want to say one thing about funding first. I went to my master's degrees without funding, um, but I sort of hustled upon arrival. Um, first of all, UT Austin was incredibly inexpensive by comparison to other places. Uh, I am, um, I'm from Michigan, so I could have gotten in-state tuition at University of Michigan had I been admitted, but um, UT Austin out-of-state tuition was less expensive than the University of Michigan in-state tuition. This is all an aside to say that when I got there, I was an excellent student, so I pretty quickly got things like out-of-state tuition waivers. Um, and between my, in my second year, because I was in a dual degree program, I applied for a fellowship that's called the, oh shoot, I can't remember now, but I had lots of people tell me um, that's for PhD students, you shouldn't apply for that. I think it's called the continuing fellowship. Um, but I said, but I decided to apply for it anyways. I was between second and third years. I had worked hard enough that I could have finished in two and a half years, but, um, I applied for and received this fellowship. So I was entirely funded for my third year and I figured why not stay and do some more coursework. Um, and so I got to do, uh, you know, a little bit more coursework, which was really fun to continue to learn. Um, but one note that I just wanted to make was that don't listen if someone says that's not for you, because if the, if the rules don't say that explicitly, then it could be for you and it could make a big difference and you never know unless you try. And I felt strongly that I wanted to at least try and then I successfully got that funding, so... Yeah. And I think that's also, I remember like when my kind of cohort of undergrad students was deciding what to do next, a lot of us were told, go get PhDs. And like some of my friends were like, why well, I'm not ready to make that commitment. I'd rather get a master's. And it was like, oh, well, master's cost money. So don't go get it. And that sounds like it's also not true. Well, it, it can be true. Um, yeah. I mean, I started my master's unfunded, so I did have some debt coming out. Um, but it also can be true that you can get there and start finding opportunities. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, master's degrees tend to not be funded, not nearly as well anyways, but there are opportunities. And were you working also like while you were at UT? Uh, yeah, to some degree. I did an internship at the Legislative Budget Board, uh, which is like the OMB for the state of Texas, the Office of Management Budget. I'm sorry, I, <laughs> uh, the policy world, everyone knows what the OMB is, but nobody knows what the LBB is. And I thought that would be helpful, but it's not. OMB is management and budget. LBB, the Legislative Budget Bureau, is in Texas. Come on, you're from Austin. You should know these things. Yeah, didn't learn that in high school. <laughs> yes, the government is full of acronyms. <laughs> uh, so I did I did a couple of internships, and I um, worked, worked as a teaching assistant a couple of times, oh. as one does. Yeah, uh, yeah, as we all do, I think. Um, awesome. So when you were finishing your master's, I guess, you 
did not go immediately into a PhD, even though it sounds like that was already an idea that was in your head. So can you tell us what you did next? And kind of if you thought, I'll get a PhD later, or like you just didn't feel like doing it, like can you landscape that a bit for me? I can. Um, I applied to PhD programs right after my master's program. I think... I got waitlisted at a couple of them. I was admitted to one program without funding, which I was not going to do. Um, And I, yeah, um, I was sure that I didn't want to have to pay for my PhD. And I think I made a couple of mistakes in the application process. Like I didn't I didn't take seriously enough the expectation that you actually connect with the researchers you might be working with in advance. I was crippled by the fear and anxiety of doing those sort of cold calls and reach outs and the potential for rejection. And so I didn't really put that legwork in. Um, I did get admitted to the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health um, degree in um, mental health, PhD, um, but ultimately because it didn't come with funding and Johns Hopkins is incredibly expensive, um, I chose not to. I deferred for a year and then after that decided not to attend. Um, So I decided that I needed a job. (laughs) Um, By this time, I was married and my significant other was actually working at the Legislative Budget Bureau, which is a weird coincidence. We did not meet there. (laughs) Uh, He moved with me from DC. But um, I spent about seven months looking for work, just alone, feeling frustrated, looking for a job. Uh, And that was hard. It is a hard part of I think especially the journey to do policy work and not just academia. Um, There was a, there was a real frustrating period. And then ultimately I ended up getting a job um, as a contractor for a part of the U S department of health and human services. Um, Specifically that job, I was called a junior economist. And I worked um, in the office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. Um, And that was my next step in life. So my now ex-husband and I moved back to D.C. together. Can you tell me a little bit about like what your day to day was like at the what is this acronym? DHS, maybe? DHS is the Department of um, Homeland Security. (laughs) HHS, Health and Human Services. Well, at first I was terrified because I'd never worked a real job, um, obviously. And I did things like not think I I could get up from a meeting to go to the bathroom. I did all of these like embarrassing things because you don't know how to, (laughs) how to work in this environment. But I got, I caught on pretty quickly. Um, And uh, my specific sort of what became my major project um, was a the annual review of the strategic national stockpile of medical countermeasures. Um, 
This may sound familiar to many in the public now. It sure did not at the time. For context, I started at HHS in January of 2012. Um, I, uh, as part of this project, we, the annual review had been going on for a long time, but it was pretty poorly managed. And there was a lot of contentious sort of different stakeholders from within HHS. Um, at the time it was managed by the CDC, but ASPER, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, which is where I was, ran the annual review and a part of ASPER called BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, did a lot of the development of medical countermeasures. So like um, keeping vaccine, can vaccine can seed candidates uh, for different novel influenza strains or, you know, developing a new um, uh, antibiotic that could be useful against um, multi-drug uh, resistant uh, bacteria, those types of things. Um, so we had to come up with a process that not only brought in the deep expertise of like subject matter experts, the people that knew the ins and outs of ondansetron and how to use it in the event of a nuclear attack. And then we had to take all of their insights about which of these whole host of different potential countermeasures that the government could stockpile and figure out how to compare apples and oranges in a way that felt fair. Um, and then sort of synthesize that information and present it to the sort of middle layer of of people who were sort of the managers of subject matter experts really understood the issues um, but weren't in the weeds, could make some more strategic decisions. And then finally um, present it to people at the level of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, including um, the head of the National Institutes of Health um, uh, NIAD, the Institute for Allergies and Infectious Diseases, won Tony Fauci at one point. Um, and so what ultimately we would do is present it to them because they're the decision makers to decide whether our proposed sort of balance of medical countermeasures to sustain in the stockpile was appropriate and get all of their agreement. So it was both politics with a little p, sort of getting everybody on the same page, but also science. And I really enjoyed, I am not a physical scientist, obviously. I have not taken a physical science class since high school, but I really enjoyed becoming the intermediary and the person that was capable of communicating and like speaking intelligently on these different issues and also connecting dots from across issues to see, to, to help make more strategic decisions. So I really enjoyed this mix of science and niche and specific knowledge, but also stri strategic and communication and decision-making. Um, all of that came together and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So I guess on behalf of the audience, I have to ask, so 2012 and thereabouts, this problem of stockpiling for things like pandemics was actively being worked on by the U.S. government. What happened? Why was like the pandemic response 
a year ago. So, you know, I mean, like we were literally talking about the stockpile problem. So like what happened and why does the policy world? Okay. I can only guess, make intelligent statements. None of this is endorsed by anyone. I just need to say that much. What year did you leave, just for for reference? I left in uh, summer 2014. Okay, so that's the context, everyone. Yes, exactly. So I think um, a few things. First of all, the strategic national stockpile is a strange mix of different types of countermeasures. Some of them are against what we think of as like intentional threats. So anthrax, um, uh, nuclear bombs, those types of things. Some of it is for potential pandemics. It is seed candidates for um, flu vaccines. It is respirators. Um, It is masks. Um, Yeah. Uh, And so there's a lot of tension between the more um, hawkish, like we need to be really stockpiling anthrax vaccines because our boys in the military need them and just in case. And so versus like, I mean, everyone knows at some point that a pandemic is going to happen. It will happen. It just depends when. Um, And so it sort of depends on who's in charge for indexing, whether we spend more money and invest more in the potential for a pandemic or a lot of the more sort of like protecting against intentional threats um that can often be some of the trade-off and unfortunately the the things that would have that really help in this type of pandemic i i'm not sure the stockpile really could have done right um there weren't this was an entirely novel um uh, pathogen. So it's not like there were, you know, in the stockpile, there are antivirals for flu influenza virus. Um, but that wouldn't have existed for coronavirus. Um, one thing I do know is that when I was in HHS in 2012 through 2014, um, BARDA, that, um, organization I mentioned earlier, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, was investing heavily in mRNA vaccine technology. So, um, and for those that don't know, the coronavirus, two of the coronavirus vaccines are mRNA uh, vaccine technology. So there's, um, you can see some of it actually bearing out from government investment. It's just not in the straightforward way you might have expected. So speaking of vaccines, uh, one thing that happened sort of midway through my time at HHS was a novel um, influenza strain was discovered, um, H7N9, um, and it was re- it was infecting humans in um, China and mostly from the wet markets, um, but it became an important thing to monitor. And so the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, her name is Nikki Lurie, she stood up um, a committee of all of the sort of different agency, or all the different component parts of HHS, NIH, CDC, et cetera, 
um, to sort of have biweekly meetings to watch this this um, virus and see how it grew. And I ended up getting appointed the sort of policy coordinator. So I was the one making sure that what CDC was researching got translated to others and that I was just essentially the, the central hub, kind of making sure all the information was held together. I, again, as sort of a theme, I was not an expert in any, right, in any way, but I was sort of a conduit for information to flow and for information to be collected. And thankfully, that did not reach pandemic um, <laughs> proportions. Uh, but because of my role, the ASPR, um, Nikki asked if I wanted to be one of her special assistants. And that job is working directly in the office of a politically appointed assistant secretary as a policy advisor. And so I got sort of a front row seat to... Um, a really high level of policy making that, um, and really policy implementation that I um, wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And I feel like I got a really amazing sort of overview from that. Wow, awesome. And so can you tell, like, was your day to day? Yeah, can you tell me about your day to day? Like, it sounds like you're in meetings, you're doing research, and you're kind of communicating with other people. Yeah, so day-to-day, um, special, the job of the special assistant, as, as it was for me anyways, there were two of us. Um, one of us was in a meeting with Nikki at, like, there was always one of us with her, um, taking notes, making sure there was consistency. The other was in the office, um, you know, reading the policy documents that um, parcel parts of Asper were creating, right? So there was a new... Um, uh, national strategy for um, preparedness and response, I think. Um, no, national health security strategy. Um, so reading that document and then flagging for Nikki what issues needed to still be ironed out, it was a lot of sort of much more hands-on big picture policy analysis, not so much in the weeds really understanding what's going on from beginning to end of the of the strategic national stockpile annual review. Um, so that was really cool, fascinating. I left uh, to pursue my PhD right uh, as the Ebola crisis was happening. And that spring additionally was sort of the first year um, that there was a major federal response to um, the waves of unaccompanied minors that were coming in the springtime. Um, and so that was sort of the context in which um, I left, unfortunately. Um, but it was really amazing exposure to the wide range of issues that come up across these things. Like for Ebola, it was, you know, ethical concerns about how to, if you're going to create a treatment or a vaccine, how would you test it? And you don't just want to test it in Africa because that is, that comes across as pretty racist, but also you want to test it in the place where these conditions are happening and get the most benefit to people immediately. So this is a tiny sort of smattering of the things that, that um, my boss was dealing with, but it was really interesting to get to sort of see so many different sides of it. Yeah. And so for you, you decided to pursue a PhD because in your life that kind of felt like the right timing or? Yeah. 
Yeah. So did you apply to like a lot of places or just Rand or how did you how did you pick Rand? And I guess we Meg ended up, I know, going to Rand, which is like a, a more of like a think tank policy place. And so that's like a pretty different um environment than I think a lot of people at least that we've had on so far Uh. yeah so I did apply to several different places um my home state let me down once again and that the University of Michigan said that they could take me the following year but not that year and I didn't really want to defer I had I knew that I wanted to get started and um actually um so the school that I ended up attending is called the Party Rand Graduate School It is sort of the only of its kind. Uh, Back in the 60s, I believe, um, the government recognized a need for sort of a different type of trained government employee, not just public administration, which is what all of the degrees had been up till then, but actually public policy degrees. And there were a set of sort of founding policy schools, among them the Kennedy School at Harvard, the Ford School at the University of Michigan, the LBJ School at UT Austin, and RAND, um, the party RAND Graduate School, was the sort of foundational and the only, was one of these foundational schools and the only one that was PhD specific. So um, I, while working at HHS, one of my colleagues and someone that I sort of felt was my work older brother was actually an alum of the um, party ran graduate school and my boss Nikki had worked at Rand for a long time and thought extremely highly of the program and so I had the benefit of really getting um, the sort of inside scoop about this program and I knew that I would get I would get to continue doing more hands-on, like, engaged work, working with clients in government and that sort of thing um, by attending RAND. And so I just ultimately decided it was the best option for me. Um, I was terrified of moving to Southern California um, because I assumed that everyone there was going to be the stereotype of um, superficial bimbo jerk. that could not be further from the truth, but um, but yeah, that was the next uh, adventure, is the moving to Southern California. Awesome. And yeah, so the Party Rand School is based in Santa Monica, for anyone who doesn't already know that, probably a lot of people. Um, so can you tell me about what your phd project was and kind of what your phd was like in like a personal like from a personal perspective yeah um so party rand um has a different sort of funding mechanism than your typical phd program um essentially when you join Party RAND, you um, enter an internal labor market, and within RAND, there are all these research projects. There are people that have, you know, um, NIH grants to work on 
you know, a health economics problem, and there are people that are working directly and for HHS, and there are people that are doing a lot of military work, which was not my particular area of interest. Um, so you enter this internal labor market, and you have introductory meetings with all these different researchers trying to get hired onto projects. And then you track your time and bill your time to those projects, and that's how you get paid. So it is a very different system than I think the typical one. And in many ways, it's great. Um, you get more autonomy over which types of projects you get to work on. I think you probably get more diversity than in other PhD programs. But again, I've only done the one and I really only plan to do the one. Um, so, but it also, it's a little less secure. Um, there's less stability, I, I felt. Um, in my time at, um, in, in, grad, in my PhD program, <sighs> there were some pretty difficult things in my personal life that I had to manage. I um, got separated, got divorced, um, ended up deciding that I needed um, help with um, treatment for an eating disorder that I had been experiencing for a decade or more. Um, but I was, and, and I'm extremely grateful that like my insurance covered those things and I was able to do them, but it was not clear that there was a way for me to say, take a leave of absence and still make any money. Um, and so there's a lot of vulnerability, I think, in this program to if something goes off in your personal life, in something outside of work, um, it's if you don't have the financial resources or the backup plan or the safety net, it falls apart pretty quickly. I am extremely fortunate that I did have the financial resources and the safety net to be able to keep my head above water, but um, I can see that not being true pretty easily for a lot of people. Yeah, so I guess for my clarification, so like in a PhD program like I went to, I had like a guaranteed small amount, almost like a salary every month that was coming in, um, regardless of my productivity at that time, uh, which definitely has advantages. And then in this case where you like literally it's like a consulting job almost where like your income is going up and down based on like what you're able to tackle. So it can be one option is for them to just give you a, the same amount every month, but then you need to you have to work that amount or you go into debt to the school or you can build up extra um, money. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little, I saw the eyebrows raised there. Yeah. Going in debt to the school. It's an interesting concept. Wow. So that is very different. And how does that even pair with like your actual PhD output and the, are you taking classes? Yes. Okay. So it's like, instead of being like a research assistant, like where I am, working in a lab, which also your mileage may vary. Like there are research assistantships during grad school where um, an advisor is like, you do this work for me and it doesn't really contribute to your career. And there are other research assistantships and I had both of these types of things where um, I'm just doing the research I would be doing anyways because we're all on a grant together. 
Um, and this sounds like it's a little bit separate from what your PhD project was. I, yes. I got scholarship funding for my PhD project, but none of my actual work had to do with my PhD. Interesting. So I guess, yeah, I can see that the advantage of the system is that you're actually working. So when you leave your PhD, you're not like, I'm skillless, uh, I, which isn't true of anyone leaving a PhD, but it definitely feels like that sometimes. It's like, oh, I've been doing this work already. I know what to do. The disadvantage is this sounds like kind of a crazy way to be doing a PhD. It is a challenge to be able to focus on your actual research when the incentive is to not. (laughs) Um, It is a challenge. And um, there are different sort of modes that you can choose in this PhD program. Some people actually do end up doing a dissertation that is based on the type of like work they've been doing with different researchers. Um, I really wanted to do something I was passionate about and none of it, no one at Rand was sort of working in this particular area. Um, If I had, uh, well, in all honesty, I started Rand thinking I was going to continue working in pandemic preparedness. Um, While at HHS, I had worked with some really brilliant mathematical modelers who had created a model for um, a pandemic influenza that included um, ways to look at the impact of vaccination, efficacy, speed of of creation, speed of deployment, as well as antivirals and um, community-based solutions like school closures and stuff like that. All things we're all intimately aware of now. Um, And I really thought I was going to use that model and apply some more in-depth sort of um, mathematical modeling techniques that RAND, that were pioneered by researchers at RAND, and then I would be out in like four years, three years, whatever. Ultimately, when I, (laughs) I sort of made a decision towards the end of my second, no, end of my first year, beginning of my second year that I really wanted to pursue the things that were more authentic to me. And that included getting divorced, getting help for a major mental health condition and choosing the path of perhaps more resistance in doing a dissertation topic that really I cared about. And so I recognized that I made some of, I I made that decision and that's the direction that I went. Mm. And so what was your dissertation topic? Uh, My dissertation uh, is exploring um, the ways that physical health and mental or behavioral health um, conditions are treated differently in the United States. Um, That's sort of the big broad scope of things. What I did explicitly was I picked two case conditions, one that was a physical health condition and one that was a mental or behavioral health condition. And I first, I explored um, a set of claims data uh, to see, uh, to look at care patterns and to see um, consistently, how consistently people were sort of moving through the healthcare system. Um, And then I also did in-depth interviews with um, people who are experiencing these conditions 
and um, people who, who were providers for people experiencing these conditions. So the two that I chose um, were eating disorders, which was a personal sort of point of interest for me, um, and diabetes, because they both are complex, require chronic condition management, require the care of quite a few different sort of types of, of providers, and um, were really good um, sort of foils to one another because of the degree of access to things like insurance coverage and the degree of understanding um, among, among sort of just the community around people with diabetes are sick and need care, obviously. People with eating disorders, much less so. Um, so there were a lot of different issues of sort of stigma, but also insurance coverage and all those sorts of things that I could tease out. Um, and so I found it really fascinating. Wow. And I guess, it, yeah. So what, what, did you basically find that there's less coverage, less care, le and like more stigma for things like eating disorders relative to diabetes? Yeah, I mean, significantly less coverage. One of the main issues with eating disorders after the Affordable Care Act came into place, um, insurance companies are not allowed to discriminate between um, mental health or behavioral health coverage and physical health coverage. But um, they put it, there are a lot of what are called um, non-quantifiable um treatment limitations, um, which are, uh, which are, relate to the fact that you can't always measure the quality of someone's recovery from an eating disorder, for instance. You can measure their weight, which may tell you about their physical recovery, but it won't tell you anything about their actual, like, mental recovery. Mental health is much less quantifiable often than physical health, and so that's one way that, um, insurance companies have gotten around coverage. Um, I know a lot of people who have had really serious eating disorders, but because their weight reached a certain level, um, were their insurance cut their, their coverage. Oh, wow. So I see. So it's basically, I mean, I guess the assumption within the system, even if it's not on purpose, is that if you're at a certain weight and you have an eating disorder, it doesn't count because... Yeah, so people would come in extremely underfed, for instance, really, really undernourished. And then there's a piece of treatment that is called the refeeding process, which, you know, you, you are trying to have someone gain weight in a healthy way. In fact, if you don't do it under medical supervision, it can lead to um, heart attacks, death, it can be really dangerous. Um, but then insurance companies will see, well, this person has gotten their BMI back up to this point, so they must not need this intense level of care anymore. They must be all better or much better. And so the cut, you know, your insurance would no longer, it would start to deny claims for the type of care that you might need. Hmm. Even though, and like with diabetes, I guess it's kind of like a lifelong thing that you're tracking because it's not expected it's you can manage it but not make it disappear basically. right and it's just an accepted expected thing um the other piece about eating disorders is that weight is really really not a good measure of 
of whether you're suff whether you're struggling or not. Um, there's gaining traction for what's called atypical anorexia, which is that someone who's who engages in all of the same sort of behaviors, um, but does not have an emaciated body, um, is still an anorexic, still still struggling, and. Um, According to our current diagnostical statistic, diagnostic statistical manual, excuse me, um, you only qualify as anorexic if your BMI is below a certain threshold. So, and and one of, I mean, while I was still living in LA, I looked at UCLA's website for some reason, and they actually were advertising a program for um, people in larger bodies, saying like come do this medically um, supervised 800 calorie a day diet. And it's just, these are the things that we prescribe to people in larger bodies. And they're the things that we would diagnose in people with smaller bodies. And so there's a lot of sort of injustice and inequity there. You have, you're researching something or you were researching something that you also experienced. And so I think the lens that you're, you were viewing it from is like a, a more, I don't know, clear lens of the problem. And so what do you, yeah, like what should we do? What can like society do and what can like the healthcare system do better? Um, there are yeah. lots of things. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that I, um, was explicit about in my, in my research was that I self-disclosed, um, whenever I had an interview with someone either, um, especially with individuals who had also experienced eating disorders, I would self-disclose because I think it's an important part of being, um, an authentic researcher. And I think that piece of, um, ethics and integrity come in a lot more when you have to do sort of that interview research. Um, and um, I think there are a lot of different pieces that could change this puzzle. Um, starting, I guess, from the smallest, the narrowest, which is at the level that someone is very sick, um, we should change insurance companies should pay for them to get better um regardless of what the condition is and i think you know one of the things i thought about was like if i had a much larger longer set of claims data you could start to prove that by not helping people fully resolve this condition they cycle through over and over and over that was actually one of the things that i proved in my claims data analysis was that um, people with eating disorders were much more likely to cycle through care. Um, and my hypothesis there is that it's because they were getting sort of um, refused care before they were truly better. Um, so I think expanding insurance coverage, one piece. Um, another piece is expanding um, doctors training around what eating disorders look like in reality, not just in stereotype and movies, um, asking questions about, you know, how often you are thinking about food or thinking about exercise, um, and really authentically accepting 
that weight is not an indicator of health necessarily or an indicator of eating disorder or not necessarily. Because if, if what you're looking at is somebody's body size and their BMI, but not asking deeper questions about their relationship to their body and their food, you're never going to catch these things. And in addition, different people are built differently, especially across ethnic groups. So if you're looking at a community of color where the body shape may just be different than what we've assumed for people with eating disorders, you miss a ton, especially because there are so many stereotypes of it being a thin, well-to-do, white, young woman's condition. Which, yeah. to be fair, I fit that stereotype. <laughs> not anymore. I'm not, I'm not thin anymore, which is fine. But um, I did at the time fit that stereotype. Um, but there are so many people that are suffering that like do not fit that stereotype. But because the, st uh, the stereotype continues to be perpetuated, we miss them. Um, the one thing I do want to sort of add is that... Um, there is a piece to eating disorder recovery that people with, in this case, diabetes, but I would, I would suspect a lot of sort of more quote unquote traditional um, physical health chronic conditions, which is that there's um, some identity and meaning making that happens out of, out of treatment for mental health conditions. So people who had experienced an eating disorder and gotten appropriate treatment for it found that they were, um, that they found meaning in the experience of recovering from that condition. Whereas people with diabetes just felt that they had to manage their condition for their whole life. And so there is something potentially positive about that where we could actually for people with chronic physical conditions, there can be perhaps meaning making there as well. And perhaps there's something to learn from the way we approach mental health conditions that physical health could benefit from. Yeah, not just like this is um, something I just have to deal with, unfortunately, but this is a challenge in my life that I overcame and I can take away some of that experience and use it elsewhere. Yeah, or like, this is a challenge in my life that means I'm constantly in touch with how my body is doing. So thinking of type 1 diabetes, this is something in my life where I'm constantly more in touch with how my body is doing processing um, sugar than pretty much anyone else. And so that gives me insights that other people don't have. You know, what is, is there positive meaning that comes from it? Not just the frustration of like, well, I have to keep um, juice boxes by the bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, the other th thing I think I want to make sure that is stated explicitly is that I think, I mean, it's, I think this kind of idea of like um, the like grand mistake of the healthcare system kind of using BMI and weight as like a way to judge health in general. Uh, is like finally, I guess, being talked about a bit more. It seems like in the media, like actually, you know, a thin person doesn't equal a healthy person and like that kind of thing. Um, 
And I mean, I guess maybe we just want to like link to some resources or something about that information because I think it's still it's like so ingrained in um in our society that it's still probably hard for people to like even wrap their heads around fully and how it's like impacting their own lives. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, um, the grand mistake of the healthcare system. I like the way you phrase that. Um, a grand mistake of the a just the one, just one of many. Um, I think, you know, just speaking from personal experience, I recently had a physical, and every time I go in, I ask not to be weighed. Every time they tell me I have to, and I get frustrated. And then the nurse comes in and takes my blood pressure, and my blood pressure was, surprise, surprise, a little bit elevated. The doctor came in and said, you know, oh, your blood pressure is a little bit elevated. We'll check you again at the end. And he was being responsible, like he was being respectful enough not to sort of immediately give me dietary advice. Um, but later I figured I would just ask because I'm in a really solid place. And he said, well, you know, you can eat a little bit less salt, but really just reduce your carbs because like pounds off of you will be like reduced points in your blood pressure. I went and they rechecked my blood pressure and it was perfect. Um, and so just this assumption that like there is, there may be correlation for some people that loss of weight changes their blood pressure, but there may also not be. And also that correlation may have nothing to do with their weight. Maybe they exist in a world where people in fat bodies have a lot of stress because people judge them all the time. And when you reduce that level of stress, because they maybe have lost weight, that could also impact blood pressure. So there are just a lot of assumptions that we make around body size and health that I agree. I'm glad we're talking about more, but um, there's still a pretty big reckoning to come, I think. Whoa. Yeah. I didn't even think of, yeah, of course, your blood pressure goes up if you're stressed out. So probably a lot of, yeah. So, and how do you even like test that? I mean, there's definitely ways to test that better, but. There is actually some good research out there. Um uh, amazingly, two of the researchers I've read the most are um, two women named Rebecca, Rebecca Puel and Rebecca Pearl, who I think both went to the same PhD program, but they do amazing work on sort of weight bias. And they're one, one of the papers that I've read that I cite a lot um, found that internalized weight stigma um, resulted in higher... Uh, worse metabolic outcomes um, among a population of um, obese people seeking a medical weight loss program. Those that had higher level levels of internalized stigma also had worse metabolic outcomes controlling for all other things. So um, yeah, there's some pretty cool, compelling research out there. Yeah. And I, aren't they finding similar things, like similar racism effects in public health where like there's also just really clear metabolic stressors of, yeah and in fact color. um interestingly um weight bias is one that is not protected um pretty much anywhere i think michigan has technically has a law in the books that you can't fire someone because of their weight 
there's solid research that shows people in larger bodies make less money than their smaller bodied um, peers. And um, that weight stigma is the largest source of bullying among children and that it is increasing fat incredibly fast and now I think more people experience weight bias than experience racial bias. Not to say that those two are at all comparable, but the rate at which it's increasing is pretty incredible. All right, so you did all of this public health research at RAND. Um, I just looked at your dissertation time, or like it says, like finished September 2020. So actually not very long ago, technically. Um, but I know you started at If Sooner. Um, Dave and I did discuss a lot of like the If things in his podcast, but I guess I would love to know like, um, yeah, can you talk about how you ended up at your current position and then like kind of where you envision your future if I do. Yes. So, um, I think in my first year, even at Rand, I got hired on this sort of kooky project working on thinking about the different specialties of scientists that are sort of useful to the government. So think like nuclear scientists that were necessary when Fukushima happened to sort of monitor and know what was going on. There's not a huge demand for that level of scientist, but we also don't want to lose that scientific expertise entirely. And so the idea was thinking like, if we took the approach of different, um, of how people protect endangered species to think about, um, I don't know, keeping, uh, keeping endangered scientists around um, or endangered subjects around, uh, what would that look like? And the PI on that project was someone that you've met, uh, who was an earlier guest of this podcast, uh, Dave Bioki. And I really enjoyed working with him. And he left Rand to start a small consulting company called Imaginative Futures, or IF, um, or IF. I think I usually call it IF. I don't know. Anyways, um, in summer 2019, um, I worked with him to pitch and bring in a project with the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. And so I worked as a subcontractor for him, essentially. Um, and I worked really closely with him doing all of the research, and that was really fun. Um, one thing I realized while working at RAND was I don't do super well alone. <laughs> um, I don't do well when you know, my job is to go off and do this one little portion of the project, come back, report out. I do much better in a dynamic working environment. And that is something that I found with Dave, where, you know, we just work really well together. And so when I finished, I was getting very close to finishing my PhD. I defended on March 12th of 2020. Um, and then the government shut down or the state of California shut down three days later. Um, yeah, I got stuck in the like pandemic 
you know, quicksand like many people did. And so I did not finish my dissertation right away. And I was looking for other ways to start making some money. Um, and I followed up with Dave and he'd started working on a few different small projects. Um, we kind of just went in and it very quickly became a very successful thing. Um, and so now um, we are, I'm joining Imaginative Futures as um, an associate uh, principal, which is to say junior partner, essentially, um, and doing work that is entirely different from anything I've done before. Uh, part of my thought process actually was knowing that I wanted to get some private industry experience. Um, you've just heard me talk about how I've worked as a TA in a university and I've worked at a nonprofit think tank at Rand and I've worked in federal government and I've interned in state government. I had zero business experience. Um, and I kind of knew I wanted to get that partly because I think one of my goals is to have an impact on, on things that are important to me, potentially through either leadership at an NGO or something of that level someday. Um, but to do that, you need more, I mean, to be successful in, in NGOs, especially in leadership, where there's such an important component that is um, fundraising and making those connections. Um, I wanted some private industry experience. And so here I am. I fell right into it with a person that is wonderful that I get to work with. And I just feel so lucky, um, really, really lucky to be doing this. You, I forgot, there was another piece of your question, which is where do I see my future? Oh, it, it sounded like it was NGOs. I mean, go ahead, but. I, so that was initially, I thought maybe someday sort of leadership in that way. I also have been feeling strong, like I've been enjoying the process of building a business um, and also would love to steer part of that business. I know Dave has a particular interest in certain types of projects. I still have a soft heart for policy, for public good, for all of those things. And so my hope for, you know, the next five to 10 years is to keep working with Dave, building a business where, you know, we are, where I can start sort of steering either like a portion that works more with, with public or nonprofit agencies, that sort of thing. Um, but I think my heart will be always interested in steering back toward like, how do I do good in the world? Um, so that's uh, kind of where I see myself now is trying to sort of shepherd and maybe create that portion of IF. One thing I would say about that Dave and I are realizing now with IF is that like we are both trained researchers, which means we do not know how to set up a lot of business things. And I think one theme I've picked up in some of your other episodes of this podcast is the idea that like being an academic, being a scientist, being a researcher is more than just achieving a PhD. 
And I think taking this pivot to try and like build a business is requiring me to learn things in areas I never expected. And I have always really felt strongly that each person's expertise is highly valuable, but I'm just seeing now how much, how important other types of expertise are and how much I have to learn from people who have opened small businesses, all of these things. And so I guess what I'm trying to fit together here is this idea that like, you can be a scientist, you can be an expert in just about anything. And I'm really witnessing the expertise that other people bring and being able to sort of lean into my own expertise, knowing where I'm good, knowing where I need help. And I think that's been a huge piece of this learning experience. Yeah, I love that. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you two follow-up things. One is, um, earlier, you mentioned the seven-month period of time where you were not getting a job, and I think that's like an experience um, that's non-unique that a lot of people have, that I certainly um, have had, and I was wondering if you would give yourself... Um, your former self any advice about that if you have any I don't think my advice is going to be earth shattering um I think I would give myself the advice to be kinder to myself um I felt a lot of pressure I think that's when I I got a little bit sicker um with the eating disorder because I felt like I had so little control. Um, so I think I would have told myself to be kind to myself. Um, I also probably would have told myself to enjoy it a little bit more. Um, I also, this is something that's annoying, I'm sure to many people, but I do, I have been fortunate enough in my life that like the right thing has happened at the time at the right time and I know that is a deeply privileged thing to say um but I would hope that I wish that were true for everyone and I would probably remind myself to have a little bit of patience um also just to stop being a perfectionist like send out more like send out more resumes and cover letters without obsessing over whether they're good or not just send them just mm. do the thing yeah that's good advice yeah, and same with the yeah people applying to PhD programs. Like, just reach out to people. Same, you know. Yes, just do the thing. Yeah, rejection yeah. is not so scary. Yeah, it's not great, but it, you know, you'll definitely not get any yeses with zero um, attempts. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring back up is that you mentioned. Um, the women's economics um, thing that you went to. And I just, yeah, and you mentioned that there maybe were, was more than one time in your life um, when like a, a women's specific program was like kind of having impact. And I was just wondering if you wanted to, or if I could get you to talk about um, kind of what that feeling was and like what women specific groups can do for women um, yeah, and what they did for you a little more. I think, um, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about this. I think, um, first, 
women-specific groups also can include trans women, also can include non-binary people. Like, I think for the most part, and it's not even about, actually, it's about excluding, it's about changing the power dynamics in a space. Um, it's about the fact that no matter how hard we try or how, like, feminist the men in the space might be, there is just a power differential. There's just a difference based on the way our society has been our entire lives. And so that power structure difference, when you sort of remove that, I just have felt more freely myself. Um, and so the other case where this was very true was growing up, I went to camp and the camp that I went to was an all girls camp. And I just remember that being the place where I was just wholly and fully a total weirdo and very happy about it. And so I think I really have found that that sort of change in, in power dynamics makes a huge difference in like just how free I feel. And now in my adult life, I am aware of the power dynamics and I kind of, I don't know, I like to buck them sometimes. Um, I can be a very direct person in a way that I think many people associate with maleness. And I can also be a very like conciliatory person and, and very like smooth things out. Like I can do either, but I no longer feel that as a woman, I have to sort of do one or the other. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it, it might be worth also ex stating very explicitly that this is also the reason that there are groups like Black and Engineering and like because they're also removing, you know, if if we exclude white people from the table sometimes, then that power balance is also... Absolutely. And, you know, yes, absolutely. It's the same. And that's why there are some like queer only spaces, trans only spaces, it's because there are power dynamics at play, I think. So Meg, thank you so much for coming on the show. That seems like a nice place to leave it. That's it for us this week. Also a little career update for me is that I just started working with Meg and Dave Vioki, who I interviewed in episode 12 at Imaginative Futures. This work has given me an opportunity to be at the interface of science and policy, which is something I've actively been trying to do, and it gets me experience in the private sector, which is not something I ever planned on. That just feels like a fun little disclosure to make while we're talking about careers on the show. Thanks as always for listening, and please follow us on our social media pages, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>